everybody. It's Mittens with another episode of Supernatural George. We have finally reached the end of season one. Yay! Which means <laughs> next week we'll be moving on to season two because I've decided that this episode, the way it cliffhangers, I don't want to take away from how it continues into next season. So I will just be moving along as usual. And if I think of something random, shorter, little bonus episode to throw in somewhere down the line, I'll do that. But for right now, I just want to kind of stick with with canon and and what we've been doing. So hopefully that's okay with everybody else, because that's what I'm doing. (laughs) There's a few things I really want to talk about before we even get to the road so far segment and all of that. But first of all, uh, let's just introduce who brought us this episode. Of course, it was written by Eric Kripke, and it was directed by Kim Manners. So, you know, this is the showrunner's, this is his creation. This whole universe is his creation. These characters are his creations. And this is putting a seal on the end of his first season. You know, when he wrote it, he wasn't 100% certain they were getting a second season. This was almost where this series left off if if they hadn't gotten a second season imagine this being the series finale with them getting you know plowed into in the final scenes and not knowing if they lived or died this is also an episode where we have some of the script pages we have the casting sides for bobby because this is also our first episode with bobby singer They had been intending to try and get Missouri Mosley back for more episodes later, but she, the actress, was working on another series at the time and they weren't able to get her. So instead, we got Bobby Singer. And aren't we glad for that? Because he's a core character of a lot of the series from here on out. A father figure to Sam and Dean, a very important character in the show and... For 12 seconds at the beginning of this episode, Bobby Singer has a dog, (laughs) a big old Rottweiler, and he has a dog until Meg kills the dog, basically making Meg a completely irredeemable character. Like, how did we ever redeem this character in any way? I don't know. You kill a dog in movies, television media in general if you kill a dog you're based that's that's the author telling you this character is not redeemable there is nothing good about this character like they are evil even later in the series metatron is redeemable because he sacrifices his own food when he's clearly starved and he's dumpster diving he sacrifices his own food to a dog and that makes him a redeemable character because he does a kindness to a stray animal. And here's Meg killing Bobby's beloved dog. And yet somehow later on we will actually have sympathy for her. So, eh, whatever. It's a long way to go. But the casting sides that we have for Bobby are very interesting. Because casting sides come out during pre-production. Like when they're casting the episode in, in the few weeks prior to filming, usually. So they're an early script draft past the writer's drafts. Like this has been approved by the network. So the network draft is done. And they're probably working on an early version of the shooting script 
but it got revised quite a bit in a very substantial and significant way. When we first meet Bobby, there's some lines that get changed where Bobby is describing John. In the casting sides, first scene inside his house, Dean says, thanks for helping us out, Bobby. And Bobby replies, hell, with what I owe your dad, least I could do. He's going to be okay, boy. Don't you worry. And it's just like, with what I owe your dad? That is not something that Bobby would say. And in fact, he never did. He didn't owe John anything. I think they were going to originally make this kinder to John. And then the actual script is Dean says, Bobby, thanks. Thanks for everything. To tell you the truth, I wasn't sure we should come. And Bobby replies, nonsense. Your daddy needs help. And then Dean replies, well, yeah, but last time he saw you, I mean, you did threaten to blast him full of buckshot, cocked the shotgun and everything. And then Bobby replies, yeah, well, what can I say? John just has that effect on people. So in the few weeks between when that casting script was written, likely a few weeks And when the shooting script was revised, they changed the entire tone of Bobby's relationship with and opinion of John Winchester. He went from being someone that Bobby owed something to, to being somebody who chased John off with a shotgun. Not only that, but changed the general opinion of John to someone lots of people would like to chase off with a shotgun because John has that effect on people. It was Kripke himself who recharacterized John in this way, like through his earlier episodes, sure. But specifically, Kripke had an opportunity in this episode to change the tone about John Winchester. And I would sincerely love to read a full draft of this episode, like an earlier draft, to see how it would have been handled, the scenes with possessed John later in this episode, and Dean, and the insults that get flung, and John's opinions of Dean. Because this tiny little change in Bobby's line sort of signals that there was a larger underlying change, that it casts John in a much more negative light right from the start of this episode. Like if they'd left in the line of about Bobby owing John and of course I'll do anything, you know, to help him out because, you know, I owe him. That's a very different tone than, you know, chased him off with a shotgun. It wasn't even from like positive to neutral. It was from positive to what the fuck. So there something very drastic changed in this draft. I think it's significant that it was done by Kripke and not by another writer and not by someone later in the series that, you know, all this talk about how John gets recast as this like bad person that he never was. And I'm like, dude, Kripke put it in the episode himself. Season one finale, big one here. And that was the tone at the very beginning of the episode It's Bobby's introduction to Sam and Dean, Bobby who we know will grow to become their father figure and feel fatherly toward them and they will feel 
that he is their father figure, that he has this opinion of John. And this is his first, one of the first things we learn about Bobby as a character is that he feels this way about John. And that feels significant. And yet he's still willing to help Sam and Dean. So he obviously has a closer connection to Sam and Dean than he has to John. It's interesting. I don't know if they contextualized it, recontextualized it that way, just to explain why Sam and Dean may not have seen Bobby in a long time or why they were hesitant to come and ask him for help sooner. Like, why didn't they call this demon expert guy in the beginning of the season when they were dealing with Specky, the wonder demon on the airplane? If they knew this guy who had demon knowledge or demon lore, why wouldn't they have approached him sooner? It's the discomfort around this previous last time they saw him when he scared John off with a shotgun. And clearly that disincludes Sam and Dean from having been involved in whatever this shotgun necessitating incident was, but they still saw it and knew it happened and had been hesitant to approach Bobby again since. It's clear that Bobby never felt the need to pull a shotgun on Sam and Dean in that situation. It was just John. So, Already, it's a separation of there's a deeper relationship here already, and it sets it up very quickly. But in doing so, it really throws John in the trash (laughs) all in one fell swoop. And I appreciate that because it gives credence to everything else that's just kind of like pinged around the edges as being something really dark and definitely neglectful, potentially abusive relationship John had with his kids. And I appreciate this because this makes it unequivocal and clear that it's not just something we're reading into this or choosing to think, but Bobby has that firm opinion of John too. Anyway, now that I've ranted about that for 10 minutes, uh, let's move on. Uh, We get our The Road So Far segment. And as I said last week, of course, last week we had Carry On Wayward Son This week we have random song, Fight the Good Fight by Triumph. The scenes from the Road So Far segment are almost entirely from the previous episode. There was a couple of random shots of further past things like Mary's ghost and Sam talking about Jess, but almost entirely it was basically just a recap of last week's episode. It wasn't a season finale wrap up like the previous road so far in last week's segment was. It ends with the final scene of last week's episode, Meg calling Dean and telling him they're never going to see their father again. Dean hangs up with her, and then the scene continues to this week's episode, which I guess technically is our cold open now. There was no, like, definitive card that said now. You know, it just blended right in. Sam's in full-on anger mode as soon as he realizes that something's wrong with Dean on the phone. When Dean hangs up, Sam's like, well, what'd she say? You know, realizing it was Meg. And Dean's like, I just told you, they've got dad. That's like all there is to it. That's all they know. Except Sam is going into full-on rage mode here. And Dean is going into, okay, time to think fast and, and make a plan mode. Dean picks up the Colt, tucks it down the back of his pants, gathers up his bag, gets his coat on, is getting ready to leave this motel where they are. They're still in salvation. You know, the place for sinners. 
Dean's like, we got to get out of here. They know we're in salvation. They're probably coming. They know we have the cult. They're probably coming for us next. And Sam's just like, well, then we'll stay. We still have three bullets. We can kill the demon. And it's like, Sam, are you that stupid to think that the the demon would be the one come to come and kill you and take the cult from you? No, it's going to be more minions like Meg and her brother and the, you know, Tom the demon, the random demon, or red shirt demon number five, six, and seven to take the last three bullets from, from the cult. Like, they're not going to send the one guy they're all in servitude to to get the gun from them. You're not going to get another shot at it, Sam. Be rational. So Dean is being rational. They've only got three bullets left. The demons know where they are. They're not just going to send a few demons. They're going to send a buttload of demons. As they're tearing ass to Bobby's house, Dean suggests that they're probably going to want to make a trade. They're probably keeping John alive to make that trade. And Sam is like, if that's the case, then why didn't Meg set up a trade? Sam is already convinced that John is dead. And Sam is like, if he is dead, and I don't want to think, you know, they even can't even say the word dead. If he is, then he would want us to keep going. He would want us to kill this demon. We need to stay and kill this demon. He's just still trying to argue. And it's like, I don't think Sam is actually processing. He's on the same rage level mentality that John was. He knew he was walking into a trap last week, and yet he still went anyway. They could have just not shown up and yes their hunter friends would have been in danger they could have warned their hunter friends to get someplace secure set up a devil's trap protect themselves whatever way they could but they didn't they just chose to barrel right through the situation knowing it was a trap and walking directly into it this whole self-sacrifice to protect people they care about thing coming back to bite them again but sam is on the same drive now that this thing needs to die at all costs nothing else matters and that's the problem dean's like everything stops until we find him and sam's like how are we gonna find him and he's resigned himself to follow dean's plan that they're not going to just sit there and wait to shoot whatever demon walks through the door because they'll kill, they might kill three demons but they're not going to get the demon Dean says that his first thought is to go back to Lincoln to go to the warehouse where John's meeting with Meg was and see if they can pick up a trail, see if they can see what happened. Like they might find evidence. And Sam's like, do you really think demons are going to leave us a trail to follow? And that's when Dean thinks of Bobby. His first thought when they needed help. Finally, someone, one of them is like, yeah, we need help. They actually asked for help from somebody. It's amazing. They should do this more often. But they drive up to Singer Auto Auto Salvage and we get our first glimpse of Bobby's scrapyard. It's so wonderful. It feels like home to them for the next seven years. For the very first time, we get a peek at Bobby's library. All the millions of books he seems to have around. They finally learn that there are such things that trap demons demon traps and the key of Solomon and you know thank god they figured out how to draw easier ones than that but (laughs) the 
with the big old scorpion and all the sigils all the way around this big circle. One with just a star and a circle and a few sigils is so much faster and easier to draw. They're clearly friendly with Bobby. They're learning things from him. He's a source of information about demons, and they knew of all the people they know in the world that he would be the one who would have the information they would need, which means that they kind of knew already that Bobby was the demon guy, the go-to hunter to help out with demon stuff, which still always bugs me that they wouldn't have called him back in Specky the Wonder Demon episode because they were so far above their pay grade at that point, they didn't have any clue as to how to proceed to take care of this demon. And... Gosh, knowing what Bobby knows, it would have been really convenient, wouldn't it? But also, I mean, they didn't know that they would need a character like Bobby, and they weren't allowed to have friends back then, so (laughs) it wouldn't have worked. But good thing we got Bobby now. Bobby lays down some interesting facts that in a typical year, he would only hear about three or four demons running around, like three possessions In a year, it was his standard, and I guess that's between him and every other hunter in his, what we will come to learn, is a pretty vast network of hunters he knows. That if he was only hearing about three possessions a year on average before this, and now it's jumped to 27 possessions in the previous year that he's heard about since the show started, you know, since the demon activity started back on Earth again. He's warning them that they've stepped in something really big. This amount of demons haven't walked the earth in a long time. They are truly in unprecedented territory here. It shakes everything up a little bit because all this time they've been completely oblivious to any of these demon things. Demons had been rare before. That makes me wonder if a lot of the other monster activity had been relatively rare before the plot of the show started stirring things up. It's another thing to consider when looking at the entirety of the series. If demon activity was really low, like John thought vampires were extinct, maybe because he just wanted to believe they were. But we also have talked about the alpha vampire who kept a tight rule over the vampires and prevented them from popping up on hunter radar. So there may have been other demonic activity that just didn't trigger any hunter awareness because they weren't doing anything particularly nefarious, weren't interfering with or running across hunters or doing anything to trigger the attention of hunters. Because I think that that's at least partly responsible for the difference here because all of a sudden, not only are the demon, there are probably more demons, but they've been let off the leash a little bit. They're being given permission. They're being encouraged to go up to Earth. They're running missions on Earth for specific reasons that we are learning are related to the apocalypse, but they are deliberately stirring stuff up. Bobby has started to notice, and Sam and Dean now get to learn about it. As Bobby's explaining how much crap they're in, the dog starts barking outside, then makes a whining noise and disappears, and we know that Meg has killed the dog. She kicks down the door and comes waltzing right in. Dean pulls the flask of holy water that Bobby had given him out of his pocket. He's ready to splash her with it. But she walks right into the house, and this is where we realize 
that all of this had been a setup. Dean kind of, you know, like he said, they're going to follow us here. They know we're in salvation. They're going to follow us here. He was pretty much counting on some of the demons following them no matter where they went, that they were being watched. Dean approaches her with the holy water and is about to fling it on her. And instead, she flings him across a stack of books and into a wall. Sam is standing between Meg and Bobby as they slowly work their way around the room, trying to stay a few steps away from her. She demands the cult, the real cult. No more messing around. Sam tries to tell her that they don't have it. They buried it. It's not with them. And Meg does not believe that at all. She insists and she keeps prowling around the room, pushing them further into the room as Bobby and Sam move around. Except all of that was a ploy. Meg is just doing her villain monologue of how unimpressed she is with the Winchesters saying, did you really think I wouldn't find you? And Dean comes up behind her and it's like, we were counting on it because Meg is standing under the big devil's trap painted on the ceiling in Bobby's office. Now that they have Meg tied to a chair underneath the devil's trap, they are prepared to interrogate her. Bobby has salted the doors and windows just in case there's any other demons outside who are trying to get in. They won't be able to cross the salt, hopefully. Meg is still acting super confident they can't do anything to her. Dean is asking questions of Meg. Where's our father? She's just stringing him along, making him angrier and more riled up. She says that she killed John herself and he died screaming. And Dean just stares at her and slaps her across the face really hard. This is where Bobby is like, you might not want to do that. Because Meg might be a demon, but she's possessing a living person inside there. Dean can tell that Meg is lying, that she did not kill John, and that he's still alive. He reads people. He knows when people are lying. He expects that other people know when he is lying and tell- or telling the truth to them. When he speaks something true, he expects other people to believe. Because it's true. Because he can tell that about other people. Bobby cautions him that they can't really hurt her because there is an innocent girl trapped in there. And Dean says that's good news. And for some reason, they think doing an exorcism is the best course of action. They'll get Meg out of the girl, but it doesn't really hurt Meg in the long run. It doesn't kill her, sends her back to hell. But then the girl, Meg, whose body is being possessed by the demon is probably not going to survive this experience. The demon is the only thing keeping her alive. So she's going to die. But even in next season, when we have the episode with the rising of the witnesses, and Meg is one of the ghosts who is raised and is bitter about what it was like to have been possessed by a demon for a year, that it was horrifying to her and that she was screaming for help the whole time and couldn't be saved. And Dean was the one who saved her from that, expelled the demon. And yes, she died because of it, but that was the only way they could release her from the torment that she was suffering under the demon's possession. So it's kind of like one of those... Some you win, some you lose, some or both. (laughs) This is both. I guess it beats 
continuing to be possessed and broke in a broken body. She's still suffering all the injuries and every all the trauma that she suffered since Meg. She's been shot a couple times, you know. At this point, she should be dead like six times over. And finally, she actually gets to die and doesn't have to suffer this anymore. As Sam recites the exorcism, which is closer to the shorter version of the exorcism that we will become familiar with for the rest of the series, the exorcismos day version, not the two-part complicated exorcism they used on the airplane. Bobby actually gave him a decent one. As Sam's reciting, this is like the most drawn-out, extended length of time it takes for a demon to be exorcised of pretty much every demon ever. It took less time to exorcise much more high-level demons than her. So, This is just clearly being drawn out for the drama and for us to see this for the first time, to see it a better version than we saw in episode four with Specky, because that was just terrible. As their storyline progressed and as their CGI is even better now, Meg doesn't look like Specs. She looks like Smoke. So (laughs) they're already improving on things and they want us to take this away. They want this to take the place and become what we think of as a standard exorcism that every short foreshortened exorcism after this point, we recall this one and not Specky. So I think that's part of the reason why they dragged this out so long. But the other part was showing Meg going in and out of spasms of pain and it just hurts her. She's not like choking down the demon smoke at this point she's squirming and and shivering and shuddering and she tries to say again that describe in a horrifying way how she killed john and dean's like for your sake i hope you're lying because if it's true i swear to god i will march into hell myself and i will slaughter each and every one of you evil sons of bitches so help me god and it's like "Mm, maybe that wasn't the right promise to make about you marching into hell because you know, the whole apocalypse situation and what your role was supposed to be in that li- in later seasons. It's almost like foreshadowing that was really not intended to be foreshadowing at all and was just intended to be a threat at this point comes off looking like foreshadowing when you know Dean was supposed to have been the Michael Sword. His, his job was supposed to have been to march through hell and destroyed hell, you know, d- after destroying Lucifer. So kind of like, Yeah, a little on the nose there for a threat, Dean, but even if she does get sent to hell at the end of this exorcism, it's not like she can't pop herself right back out because so many demons are walking the earth now because this is the plan. This is the bigger picture plan, and she doesn't have to be locked up for more than a day. Once again, Dean asks where John is and Meg is like dead and she's like you just won't take dead for an answer and he's like no he can't be is it partially just Dean can tell she's lying or is it partially just Dean refuses to hear that John might be dead and I think at this point it's a little of both but I also think Dean realizes that there's much more that Meg is not telling him As the exorcism drags on even further, the chair that Meg is sitting in starts scooching around inside the devil's trap, flinging around like a -a tilt-a-whirl. She eventually is like, okay, stop, stop. I'll tell you, he, you know, he's, he's not dead, but he will be once we're finished with him. 
all they get is that he he's in Jefferson City, Missouri. The demons are keeping him there, and she she's saying that's all she knows, hoping that the Winchesters will show mercy and stop the exorcism. Meg is demanding to be released because that's all she knows, she says, but we will learn in a moment that she's lying. And she's like, what? You promised. You promised to release me. Dean's like, finish the exorcism to Sam. She's like, you promised to release me. And Dean's like, I lied. And he's like, finish it, Sam. Dean has to argue with both Bobby and Sam. Bobby's like, there's a girl in there. Without the demon in her, she's going to die. And it's like, dude, would you want to live with the demon in you? Like demon life support? That just sounds horrifying to me. Like, <laughs> put me on demon DNR. I don't want to come back from that. You know what I mean? Do I want to be possessed for the rest of eternity just so I don't die from horrific, horrific things that were done to me by the demon? And can will probably continue to be done to me by the demon for as long as I'm possessed. Mm, yeah, that's not a hard choice for me. I'm with Dean. But Sam is having a moral struggle because he's the one reading the exorcism and fact, effectively the cause of death for Meg, the girl. But eventually he does start reading. As soon as the demon is gone and it's just the girl again, she starts bleeding from her mouth and crying and it's clear that she's not long for this world but she's still alive no matter what she's been through she's still alive they run to her and untie her and try and do what they can to help her she tells them thank you thank you for it was a nightmare I've been trapped in my body for a year and she'd seen some of the things that the demon had done with her body and wasn't able to move her own body and it was just a nightmare in her words and yeah awful but she thanked them for freeing her from that she did tell them that yes meg was telling the truth john is alive and the demon that they're hunting is not there but many other awful demons are there so they know they're walking into a trap meg tells them yes they know you're going to come for him that was the whole point that they were deliberately setting up that trap. And it's by the river, Sunrise. Dean's like, Sunrise? What does that mean? And we'll come to find out it's the name of the building. The apartment building where John is being held is called Sunrise. But I just think with the themes of Sunrise and Sunset in the show and how those things are used thematically, like the first time in the canon timeline that we are ever introduced to the cult is in Sunrise, Wyoming. The cult is tied to sunrises and the name Sunrise. It's a recurring theme surrounding the cult that uh, Sunrise cult. Also in conjunction with like later seasons when Dean, there's a lot of sunset imagery about what the life of the monster hunter, you know, I'm, I, always think to 1111 into the mystic and Mildred's conversation with Dean about watching the sunset. You ever just watch a sunset to enjoy it rather than because you're waiting for dark for a monster to come out. But for some reason, the cult seems to always revolve around sunrise. Like in 1212, when, when Mary steals the cult from Ramiel before they they go to that mission 
Cass orders the Sunrise special off the menu. It's like they always mention Sunrise in these instances where the cult is a thing, it seems. But that's neither here nor, here nor there. Right now, Sunrise is just the only clue they have about where John's being held. Bobby had apparently already called the paramedics before Meg died, and he advises Sam and Dean to get out of there before they show up and they have to answer any awkward questions. And Dean's like, well, what are you going to say to them? And Bobby's like, what, do you think you invented lying to the cops? You know, like, (laughs) he'll think of something. I wonder, did he actually call the paramedics? Because, like, did they really think Meg was going to survive this paramedics or not? Or is Bobby trying to just shoo them out of the house before he has to do what he has to do with Meg? Or did he really call the paramedics and he really has to make up some lie about her now? It's just interesting to wonder, like, Meg does suggest that her family finds out that she died. It seems like her family knew that she had, when she disappeared a year ago, they believed she was dead. That that seems more plausible with that plot line. So I'm just wondering if Bobby didn't just take her out back and give her a hunter's funeral after all of this and just wanted to shoo Sam and Dean off to their own mission. Bobby gives them the bit, one of the big books on demons to take with them. And he says that once they get John back, bring him around. I probably won't even try to shoot him this time or something to that effect. So <laughs> I guess... He's willing to let bygones be bygones if they all manage to survive this one. They arrive in Jefferson City and Sam is looking through his big book of demon symbols and things and Dean is getting his guns ready and Sam finds something that he can draw on the trunk of the car that will keep demons out, he says, to create like a demonic lockbox to keep the cult in while they go hunt for John. Dean gets really incensed that Sam is drawing on the trunk of his car, even if it's just in grease paint. Sam explains that it will keep everything inside safe from demons because demons might be watching them already, coming to scope their car out, might be tracking where they've driven after expelling Meg. Meg would know exactly and go report immediately in hell what the Winchesters were about to do. So that's the one downfall of expelling demons you're just sending them off so that they can report back to headquarters basically (laughs) you're not killing them you're literally sending them on a one-way ticket to hell but they can get a return trip ticket once they get there so it's not really that effective a way to stop a demon this scene will become key later in the episode dean wants to bring the gun the colt with them to find dad and Sam's like we can't bring it we have to have a place to hide it but Dean's like what are you talking about we need it it's all we've got to fight the demons who are holding dad captive and Sam's like no we can't we can't use it and argues that they have to save those bullets for the demon they can't just use them on any demon Sam says you know how pissed dad would be if we used all the bullets He wouldn't want us to bring the gun. And Dean's like, I don't care, Sam. I don't care what dad wants. Since when do you care what dad wants? And Sam's like, we want to kill the demon. You used to want that too. Hell, I mean, you're the one who came and got me at Stanford. And bringing all of this back up about why 
Sam is even in this hunt at all. He was out of hunting. Dean dragged him back in to get revenge. This was his mission after Jess died. This is all he can think about now. And it's like the last year of saving anyone else. Just it holds no emotional weight for Sam anymore in this moment. All he can see is getting that final revenge. He's so close to being out and he's still wearing the stupid polo shirt. And that's his goal right now. All he can think is killing that demon. It doesn't matter if he dies in the process. It doesn't matter if John has already died. It's In Sam's mind, he'd already started to come to grips with John's death, that it, it potentially could have been real. And that just made the revenge mission in him feel stronger. Dean's reply is, well, you and dad are a lot more alike than I thought. You know that? You both can't wait to sacrifice yourself for this thing. But you know what? I'm going to be the one to bury you. You're selfish. You know that? You don't care about anything but revenge. And this is Dean's mindset going in. For Dean, this has never been about revenge. Yeah, it cost him his mom. Yeah, he's had to live with this his whole life. But for him, he's taken that and he has made it about something more. He's made it something that motivates him to keep living rather than to sacrifice himself. And what would it take to drive Dean to sacrifice himself? I mean, by the end of next season, he literally does sacrifice himself. He feels like he's totally unworthy. He knows John sacrificed himself for Dean in the first episode of season two. So that's what it takes for Dean to get to the point where he feels like he can make a sacrifice. He can save the only things he cares about. And by the end of season two, that's Sam. The only thing that is motivating him to keep going at that point. I read something online earlier about how Dean has you know, never had that attitude about revenge, about revenge being a terrible thing. And it's just like, no, he really didn't like revenge. I mean, that was a serious, heavy motivator for Dean in season one was this whole, it's not about revenge. It's about our family. It's about keeping our loved ones together. But for John and Sam, both, it had always been about revenge. Sam believes that the cult is their only leverage, though. That if they walk in with the cult, the demons are just going to kill them and take it and they'll lose everything, including their own lives. Sam doesn't realize that he and Dean and John are part of a much bigger plan yet. To him, this demon is just out for their family or whatever and trying to stop them from killing him in revenge. Dean capitulates to that reasoning that if they know they have the the gun on them, they'll just take it and kill them all. Dean takes the Colt out of his pocket and then puts it in the trunk. We know that Dean will have picked it back up and brought it with him later on, but as far as Sam believes at this moment, the gun is locked safely in the trunk. As they're walking along the riverfront, they come across a building called the Sunrise Apartments. There's people just walking on the sidewalk out front. There's kids playing out front. It looks like a totally innocuous apartment building, but that also means there's innocent victims all over the place. 
They reiterate for the viewer's benefit that the demons can look like anybody. They can possess anybody. Anybody could attack them. They probably all know what Sam and Dean look like and they're waiting for them. Yet there's this whole building full of innocent human shields who Sam and Dean will not attack because, you know, they're human beings and it completely innocent. They decide their only course of action now is to create a distraction big enough to get all of the human beings out of the building. And then the only thing left inside will be the demons. So they pull the fire alarm and expect the fire department to show up within seven minutes, which seems like a random number, but we'll go with that. Sam goes inside all kind of half stealthy and pulls the fire alarm and then waits to see what happens. He's just standing there with his finger on the fire alarm after he pulled it like people aren't going to start pouring out into the hallways and running out of the building and see him standing there with his hand literally on the fire alarm pole. Like, maybe maybe it's time to move away or at least drop your hand, dumbass. <laughs> but okay, whatever. Flashes up to a couple sitting at a table, just kind of like sitting there at a table. And it's like, okay, well, this is not normal. This must be demons. One of the two demons gets up and goes into the bedroom of the apartment and we see John Winchester tied to the bed. It looks like he's unconscious. Dean talks to one of the fire department officials who shows up at the scene and who's advising him to stay back. And Dean's like, well, can I get in the building? You know, I've got a Yorkie upstairs who pees if he's nervous. Basically creating a distraction for Sam to be able to sneak around the other side of the fire truck and grab some equipment so they can pose as firefighters, which Dean confesses is something that he always wanted to be when he was a little kid. And if you go back to the pilot episode, there is a little fire helmet in his room. That was something that even before the fire, that before Mary died, that was something he wanted to be, ironically. Dean knocks on the door of the demon apartment because, of course, they have their uh, EMF detector and it went crazy in front of the demon apartment. The minute she unlocks the door, they barge inside and they have their canisters of water, except they've been blessed into holy water and they spray both demons with backpacks of holy water, basically, which, I mean, really clever, actually. Pretty, uh quick thinking and spur of the moment blessing of holy water but they subdue both demons fling them in a closet and then put salt in front of the door so the demons can't get out of the closet effectively trapping them and it's like yeah that 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 works but it would have been interesting if sam had used the same sort of demonic lockbox drawing that they'd used before but i guess salt is a lot faster just pouring a line of salt rather than trying to draw stars and stuff. They strip out of their fire gear and go and find John tied up in the bedroom. You know, made sure he's still breathing. He's alive. Dean's about to cut him loose. And Sam's like, wait, he could be possessed. And Dean's like, what are you crazy? Sam's like, and we got to be sure. And they test him with holy water and it does not react. So they believe that John is not possessed. Because every demon they ever heard of reacts to holy water. The two demons out guarding John did. So, of course, John must not be possessed. But the holy water splash does wake John up. He's like, Sam, why are you splashing water on me? 
then Dean begins to untie him. They think he's completely safe. John says they've been the demons have been drugging him. So that explains his duper. But mm, mm. the next thing he asks is, where's the cult? And Sam answers, don't worry, it's safe. So, of course, John or the demon possessing him needs to go with them if they don't have the cult on them. And he would believe Sam because Sam truly believes the cult is safe in the car. John or the demon realizes he needs to go with them to where the cult is. Meanwhile, we flash outside to the crowd of bystanders who are waiting to get back in their building or waiting to see what's going on with this whole fire incident. And one of the bystanders opens his mouth, his eyes go black and you see like little veins appear on his cheeks. And it's like, was this something that they just failed to CGI the black smoke going in their mouths? Or was this something that was originally scripted differently and they ended up acting out this way in a scene in broad daylight surrounded by innocent bystanders? They could not show black demon smoke because everybody else in the crowd would have started screaming about the black demon smoke flying down this guy's throat and they had to make it quieter? Or were these people, both of them already possessed and the demons just took over at that moment? We don't know. It's never explained. We never see another demon possession that happens this quietly with no smoke, no other sign of possession actively happening other than like a switch being turned. But the fact that they both, the the man in the crowd and then the firefighter who tries to stop him from going into the building, they both open their mouths real wide like they were considering CGIing and demon smoke after the fact. Did they run out of money because there was already so much CGI smoke in this episode? Did they run out of time to add more CGI to this episode? There's a lot of CGI in this episode. A lot of demon smoke, a lot of special effects with Meg in her chair being flung around, a lot of special effects later in the fight scene with Azazel and Dean and Sam and the cabin that they're hiding out in. There's just a lot of effects in general, and they may have just plum run out of time to figure out how to get these two men possessed. They didn't have other footage of them that didn't show them with the weird mouth gaping instead of them just like activating in some way. Whatever. I always just found that perplexing. It pulled me out of the episode. I like to point that sort of thing out just because it bugs me. But what it does feel like is they were activated by someone. Someone's order brought them to this scene in this moment, just as they were helping John to his feet and helping him get out of the apartment. Like who called on them to, to be there in that moment? Was it Azazel from within John sending out the beacon time to come? We're going to create some havoc here. You know, he hasn't got the cult yet. So like, why would he have done that before he got the cult? Like that was the whole mission of this was to get the cult from them. Right. Theoretically. Or was it just to hassle them a little more? Or who knows? But they managed to get down the fire escape with John and another demon. It looks like Tom the demon from last week still doesn't get any lines. Tackles Sam out of nowhere and just starts pummeling him into the ground. And Dean runs up and kicks him and knocks him back off. And he's just in the process of murdering Sam right here. 
he flings Dean away with demonic mind power. Dean smashes into a nearby windshield and is out of the fight. It looks like he's all groggy and whatever. This demon just goes back to wailing on Sam. Dean pulls back up to reality just enough to pull out the Colt and shoot this demon in the head. And we finally get to see this gun kill a demon. And it goes so much faster than when John shot the vampire with it two episodes ago. It's just like a little bit of lightning effect around his head, uh, some smoke dissipating, and he just goes down. And then we turn and we see Dean holding the gun. There's no dramatic shot from the gun like we see Soma often when, when the Colt is fired, the slow motion of the bullet leaving the chamber. And it none, none of that. We don't even see the gun fired. We just see Dean holding it after the fact. As he runs to Sam and gets him to his feet, Sam's all groggy now. John's all groggy from being drugged, or he, so he says. And Dean's looking down at the body of this man who he shot. He just shot through the head. Had no remorse about it whatsoever. And he's just looking down at the body like, I feel absolutely nothing about this. I just killed this man who was about to kill Sam and I feel nothing. You know, even though it was a demon, it was still a guy. And he knows that firsthand from Meg. He knows, but he doesn't feel bad about it. But now Dean's the only not incapacitated one of the three of them, and he's got to try and get them all the way back to where the car is, a long way away. They wind up at this cabin in the woods, like, it looks like it's been abandoned for a long time, but they're still salting all the windows and doors, and Sam's worried that they were followed. Dean's like, we couldn't have found a more out-of-the-way place to hide, you know. (laughs) John is still not recovered. He's getting some rest supposedly Sam thanks Dean for saving his life Dean tries to brush it off with aren't you glad I brought the gun and Sam's like come on God let me let me just thank you and Dean actually says you're welcome but then we get one of the first iterations of what I like to say is the worst thing anybody on this show can say I didn't have a choice Dean is trying to explain how he feels about having killed this innocent person this demon was possessing but it was killing Sam and he had to stop it any means necessary he did what he had to do you know he didn't have a choice in that moment he felt he didn't have a choice it was either this guy or Sam and this guy's a demon he's got to die even the innocent person he's possessing has to die Over the years, I've had multiple people ask me about the morality surrounding whether or not they attempt to exercise a demon from a person or just kill the demon, especially once they have Ruby's knife and especially once they have angel blades. They have weapons that actually kill most demons. And it's like they seem to forget this moral bit about the fact that they are killing possessed human beings. But right from the start, the morality around it is gray as it's possible to be. Because these people who are possessed, we will see more often than not, their bodies are already dead or as close to dead as it gets. The people inside are simply trapped with the demon possessing them and forced 
to witness everything these demons do with their bodies and experience what these demons do with their bodies. And it's horrifying and nightmarish being trapped in a body that would be dead if not for the demon possessing it is the baseline situation for what we know about demon possession. It's not some rare circumstance. It's literally the first baseline of any real demon because we're not counting Specky who had one agenda and that's just crash planes. We're talking about the demons with personalities, the ones who are characters on the show and interact with other characters on the show. They do not have any reservations and derive pleasure even from torturing the people they possess. And it's just disturbing how many people are like, oh, yes, well, we got to save these, the innocent victim inside. And Sam will use that as his logic in season four for why he gives in and trusts Ruby and lets her help him build up his psychic powers because he can save the people who are possessed. And if you don't think that Ruby carefully selected every single one of those people who were possessed to be able to be saved, to be savable demons, I think those were all as easily fed to her as Crowley was feeding demons to Dean in season 10 for him to kill. Like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to send this demon-possessed person over your way so you can sate your bloodlust or whatever for the mark. And it's like, same thing with Sam here, except in the opposite direction. He was being led to believe that he could save people instead of killing them. It's just never pans out to be realistic. In the vast majority of cases they run into with a demon, they even point out, oh yeah, this one's already got a healed bullet wound in his chest that looks like it's like five years old. Yeah, without the demon in there, the person's not even there really. They're just a trapped victim in their own body and it's horrifying. So yeah, it starts here. It's always been a moral gray area. Here, Dean frames it as, there's nothing I wouldn't be willing to do to save you, Sam, and dad. To him, that's all it is at this point. He hasn't really, I mean, yeah, he saw Meg die from her old wounds, but he hasn't really seen all that many demons yet. But over the course of the series, as they see more and more, they realize more and more that this is a losing proposition all around. And demons just don't leave their meat suits alive after. But this is one of those that establishes the phrase, I did what I had to do. I didn't have a choice. That whole concept becomes one of the most horrifying things that happens anywhere in the show. Whenever you hear that phrase, you know it's something bad. It's something that is deeply troubling. And this also feeds into Dean's belief for many years that he was nothing but a killer, that he was able to kill Meg to order Sam to finish the exorcism, knowing that Meg would die from it. He was able to shoot this other demon in cold blood, just without feeling even the moment of hesitation. He feels that he is a killer, and that's like a defining trait of who he is. He's a soldier, he's a weapon, he's a tool, he's a killer. And in no way is that true. Cass will eventually convince him 
15 years or 14 years down the line from now that it was never about killing. He did everything, all of it in the name of love. And that is absolutely true. But in this moment, Dean is just so terrified with his own lack of a reaction to what should be a horrifying event. He killed people and doesn't feel bad about it in the least because he managed to save his loved ones. That's like the core of the show. That's so core to who Dean is as a character. That struggle, that series long struggle for him of holding on to what he loves and realizing that he's not that killer. And he gets that in episode 19 of the final season. And then apparently that just goes in the garbage can for the series finale. So we're not going to talk about that today. We're talking about good stuff because this is a good thing. This is a core of the journey we are about to embark on. Dean says, it scares me sometimes, the things he's willing to do for his the people he loves, and to do without hesitation or even giving it a second thought. As he admits that, John comes into the room and says, it shouldn't scare you. You know, you did good. And Dean is, I mean, he takes a little bit of comfort in this, but he's also wary. This statement from John makes him wary. And that brings us back around to the conversation Sam and Dean had at the trunk of the car before when Sam was trying to convince Dean to leave the cult behind. Dad would kill us if we used, if we wasted any of those bullets. Those bullets are made for one being, the demon, you know? And Dean did not disagree with Sam at all in that moment. He knew John would kill him if if they wasted any of those bullets. And that prompts this conversation here. John says, you know, he he did good. And Dean's like, "Uh, but I wasted a bullet. Fully expecting John to be at least a little bit angry about that. At this point now, they only have two bullets left. When he tells Dean he's proud of him, is that the demon feeling John's feelings about this? Or is the demon knowing through John's knowledge of Dean that this is the words that Dean's been longing to hear his whole life. Like it's so disturbing that John then says, or the demon in John says, yeah, me and Sam, we can get pretty obsessed about stuff. And knowing that it's actually Azazel talking, tying himself to Sam and saying, yeah, we're the same is really freaky when you think about it, because early on in the series, there were theories that, well, maybe Sam is actually this demon's child and that's why he was coming for him that night. Like maybe John's not really Sam's father and that's all been debunked because of later canon for sure, but it gives them this tie and we know that they are tied by blood, the demon's blood that went in Sam's mouth when he was six months old. So there is a weird familial connection between the yellow-eyed demon and Sam, even if it's not like bodily genetic connection it's this magical demonic connection and it's just disturbing hearing john say that to dean about him and sam but also the demon saying that about him and sam john's like yeah you look out for us you always have and dean is still wary of this and 
kind of surprised that he's hearing these words, but he eventually says thanks. And that's when the wind picks up outside and all the signs of demons coming to get them start happening. The lights start flickering and John goes into panic mode or, or at least into order my sons around mode. But we know, again, it's not John. John is the one who looks out the window and says that the demons found them and it's here and orders Sam to put salt around every door and window. Sam's like, already did. And John's like, check it. But now he's alone with Dean. Though this is where Dean starts really getting suspicious. As soon as Sam's out of the room, John is like, you got the colt? You got the gun? Yeah, give it to me. And Dean's like, uh... He takes the colt out of his pocket and is like, Sam tried to shoot shoot this demon and it vanished. And John's like, yeah, well, this is me. I won't miss. Now, the gun. Hurry. Like, give me the gun now. Dean hesitates. He's got the gun in his hand. He looks down at it and he looks back up at John. And John's like, son, please. And Dean just backs away. John's questioning him again and ordering about and Dean's like he'd be furious and John's like what Dean elaborates that I wasted a bullet he wouldn't be proud of me he'd be irate Dean slowly raises the gun cocks it and points it at John Dean says you're not my dad and isn't that just the most horrifying proof for Dean that this is not his father, that his father wouldn't have been proud of him in this moment. He would have probably beat the crap out of him. He knew that this was a demon and not his father because the demon was nicer to him than his own father was. So in context with what what I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode about Bobby and how that scene was rewritten, It makes me wonder if this scene was rewritten at all or if that scene with Bobby at the beginning of the episode was rewritten specifically to make John into more of a monster in Dean's eyes and in our eyes. When your bad guy's a demon possessing a close personal attachment to the other characters and you need your characters to recognize that this is not their loved one, that it is a demon and you need it to happen in a way where they don't believe it's their loved one anymore because the demon was too nice. You kind of got to make John look a little bad in the, in the get go or it wouldn't fly. It wouldn't be believable. They had to build that up. So I'm wondering if that was the reason or if this scene was also similarly edited from something that was perhaps milder or more complimentary to John. But the fact that, Both of these scenes work together now and all of these scenes through the episode where they've talked about John and how he would react to them, quote unquote, wasting a bullet, even though it saved Sam's life and Sam would be dead right now. And likely John and Dean would be, too, if Dean hadn't, quote unquote, wasted a bullet. So I'm really curious to read the original script of this episode, but what they did was very deliberate in how they crafted John's character here. We are not supposed to feel sympathetic towards John, even though he is sacrificing himself and all of that. He's a very complicated character. And 
it does his character a disservice to dismiss the actual hard parts of his character and these complicated, messy, ugly parts of his character because it shaped his children. It shaped his relationships with every other hunter we will ever meet in the rest of the series who was like, oh yeah, I met John Winchester. Every character who's ever had an interaction with John Winchester, this reflects on how they talk about him, on how this entire series was shaped. The character of Dean Winchester, especially, it just pains me when people just dismiss his character because, oh, I, you know, he did his best. Yeah, yeah, he sure did. And it was nowhere near good enough. But I don't want to just apologize for bad characters or characters who do bad things or act badly. I want to understand. I want to talk about how that affects everybody around them in a realistic way and not just in a Oh, but, you know, John really did love, like, no. Yeah, we get he loved his kids. That's irrelevant to the discussion at hand, which is he also treated them like shit. (laughs) And it was not a very nice person. And not even other hunters who knew him thought he was a nice person. I love that he's a complicated mess of a character because his wife's death 23 years ago totally fucked him over in the head. It's more interesting and worthwhile to me to talk about it in a realistic way about what we're actually seeing on screen and how that affects all of the characters around them rather than to try and just either demonize the guy as he was all evil or try and excuse his behavior because there is no excuse for this behavior. We need to talk about it because it's relevant. And I think I've said that enough times in enough different ways and 34 different circles there in that last little bit there. But I've got John Winchester demonized staring at me from my TV screen. So (laughs) I paused it in a bad place. Moving on. And of course, as Dean is telling John, you know, I know my dad better than anyone and you're not him. Confronting him with the gun. That's when Sam walks in. He sees Dean holding the gun on John and he's like, what are you doing? And he's confused and freaked out by this. As far as he knows, Dean could be the one who's possessed. But John, almost a direct callback in season 14, episode 20, when Sam is running up in the graveyard, when Dean is holding the gun on Jack and is about to kill Jack or, but you know, can't really. He throws the gun away. Sam realizes in that moment that Chuck had been controlling them all along and blah, blah, blah. He tries to tell Dean that. He wasn't telling you the truth. He was controlling this whole situation. You've been manipulated. He was doing it for his own entertainment to watch us act out his favorite show. We're his favorite characters. This has always been about Chuck. And Chuck says something to the effect of like, Don't listen to your brother. He's stupid and crazy. And that's almost exactly what John says to Sam here is that, you know, your brother's lost his mind kind of deal. It's just uncanny how similar the two scenarios are. And both times we know the person saying that, oh, your brother's stupid and crazy, basically, is the one actually responsible for the mess. So thematically, that one worked out great. (laughs) So Dean is trying to explain to Sam, just like Sam was trying to explain to Dean in 1420, 
Dean is trying to explain to Sam, I think he's possessed. I think he's been possessed since we got him. And Sam's like, how do you know? And Dean's just like, doesn't have a really good explanation for it other than, I don't know, he's different. Sam looks between the two of them as John tries to argue, you know, we don't have time for this. Don't listen to your brother. Sam is just looking back and forth between them, trying to decide who he's going to side with. Who is he going to trust in this moment? He knows both John and Dean, has his whole life, but this is his moment. This is like where he stakes his life on trusting Dean and Dean's judgment. And John frames it as, if you want to kill this demon, you've got to trust me. And Sam has been struggling with that. Is that his true only mission? Is that his only thing he's ever cared about was killing the demon? Like he's been saying. And Sam looks at Dean and Dean looks back at him and is like, man, this is in your hands now. Dean, who has been trying to convince him that there's more to everything than just killing this demon and getting revenge. And that everything that Dean has said to him over the last few episodes about the futility of that, it means nothing if they all die in the process. That Dean is less about killing the demon and more about saving all of them. And that Dean would never be pointing the cult at John if he didn't truly believe that he was possessed. And Sam puts all of this together very quickly and he sides with Dean. And John says, fine, if you're so sure, go ahead and kill me. And he bows his head like he's going to cry, like like he's ch- choked with emotion. And Dean hesitates. Dean lowers the gun ever so slightly. The demon thinks he's won for a minute. He looks up and reveals that, yep, it was the demon all along. He flings Sam back against a wall. Then he flings Dean back against a wall. And instead of just taking the colt and leaving, you know, like he could have done, no, he's going get, to get a little payback and a, get a little torture in. For some reason, I always forget that Jeffrey Dean Morgan was the first actor to play the yellow-eyed demon on screen in a way that we actually can interact with and is more than just a shadow or an indistinct figure. So he's the first one who gives the yellow-eyed demon lines and and a speech pattern and a voice. Basically, he creates this character in the way he talks and his mannerisms and his personality. It's disturbing to think, you know, that the first time we meet the yellow-eyed demon, he's possessing the man who has been hunting him for 23 years. Sam tells him, we've been looking for you for a long time. And the demon's like, well, you found me. And it's like, the only reason we've been looking for you for a very long time is the man you're possessing. So, the irony... The demon even taunts Sam, puts the colt right down on a table, and it's like, yeah, make the gun float to you, psychic boy. And he just laughs when Sam can't, because this demon is the source of Sam's psychic powers. If the demon wants Sam's psychic powers turned off, he can turn them off. It's his blood that made Sam into that and gave Sam those powers in the first place. So... Sam can't use them if the demon doesn't want him to. At least that's how I've always read this scene. I know other people see it differently, but I can't see it another way. 
because it makes sense through the entirety of canon that Sam was not born psychic. Ironically, Dean, as Azazel begins taunting him, talking about John's in there with him and he's going to tear you apart. He's going to taste the iron in your blood. And Dean's just like, you let him go or or else I swear, swear to God. And that amuses Azazel. He's like, what are you and God going to do? And in retrospect, it's kind of interesting because we know that the angels and demons and everybody who knew more about the apocalypse coming up than Azazel did. And frankly, the writers at this point in the series did. They had no clue that the apocalypse was coming and that God was going to be a thing and angels and demons were going to battle. They had no idea. But neither did Azazel. He was never in on that secret. He had his job. He was a fanatic devotee of Lucifer. He knew his specific role in the plan, and he knew that Lilith had the rest of the plan. He didn't know what the rest of the plan was. And I love that, that he was that out of the loop, but still fanatically devoted to what he believed was his mission. And in this case, he believed he could just kill the Winchesters for his own entertainment at this point. And something stops him. It kind of, in the light of the rest of the series and trying to make sense of what Azazel's actual mission was with the special children before the apocalypse starts, because even next season, he's still going to be rather unclear on his goals. Like, yes, the goal is to find a special child, but why was he trying to kill Sam and now he's trying to make Sam into his champion and like what did he think was the point of all of this just tormenting them or whatever or did God really have a hand in stopping Azazel in helping John gain control of his vessel again that he could give Azazel time to escape or be killed if Sam had actually shot him in that moment But was that Chuck's hand in this, stopping them from rendering the apocalypse unachievable with a bunch of dead Winchesters? (laughs) I mean, sure, they could have just resurrected them, but that's boring and sort of defeats the point of all these prophecies. All the angels and demons believed needed to be fulfilled to lead up to the apocalypse. The apocalypse wasn't just, okay, here's the final step. You know, it requires all these other little steps, the preparing of the vessels and the breaking of the seals all has to be done in a specific order and with specific intent and purpose. And Azazel was just about to ruin it all here, you know? So yeah, I like to think it was Chuck actually interfering, not because he's a good and kindly God who wanted to save them, but because it wouldn't have suited his story for them to have died here. So yeah, What are you and your God going to do? Well, stop this. (laughs) Interestingly here, John, or the demon, tells a truth to each of Sam and Dean. He's taunting Dean about family and that he's getting back at them for killing his children or hurting his children. Because we know Meg's not dead. She's just exercised. Dean's like, you're kidding me. And... He taunts them back about how he killed their family. Dean's just angry. And Sam says from across the room, I want to know why you did it. Why, you know, why you killed my mother and Jess. 
John turns back to Sam and he reveals a truth that Sam had been ready to propose to Jess, had been shopping for rings and that he killed her because and Mary because they were in the way of his plans for Sam and all the other children like him. And we don't find out what those plans are, but Dean cuts him off and it's like, you know, just get it over with. All this monologuing is terrible. The demon turns around and focuses attention on Dean. So at the very least, Dean has achieved the goal of getting the bad thing in the room's attention off Sam and onto him instead. He mocks Dean for his quippiness in just complaining about the monologuing. The demon says, funny, that's all part of your MO, isn't it? Masks all that nasty pain, masks the truth. And just by, you know, making a joke here and there. And like, that's how Dean copes, masks the pain. And it's like, wow, that really hit the nail on the head. (laughs) Really, really hit the nail on the head as far as Dean goes. And that's why it hurts so much. And the demon says, you know, you fight and you fight for this family. But the truth is they don't need you. Not like you need them. Sam, he's clearly John's favorite. Even when they fight, it's more concern than he's ever shown you. And ain't that the truth? Isn't that the truth of every interaction we've seen between Sam, Dean, and John in the series to this point? Even in Dead Man's Blood, Dean is like literally standing between Sam and Dean arguing with each other. It's not Sam who gets the parting crack. It's Dean who gets berated about his care of the car. And it's like Dean's like, what did I do? I, do? I don't merit even a, you know, thanks for trying to help or thanks for keeping his situation under control. Nothing. He gets insulted instead. And so even if that's not truly how John feels about Dean, that's how Dean feels about it. And, this de- and the demon has picked that up more than John ever did. Or more than John ever probably cared to. I mean, it's like, I don't think it ever really even occurred to him. That's how it looked. But it's enough for Dean to like quit back and push down the pain and make a joke about how he's proud of his kids too. Oh, wait, I wasted them. The demon lashes out and Dean begins yelling in pain, bleeding from his chest. Sam is freaking out now and trying to escape his invisible bonds but Dean is now being actively tortured by the demon wearing John's face and Dean is just trying to call out to John who's still in there trapped in there experiencing this he's calling out to it dad dad don't you let it hurt me as Dean is bleeding horrifically and Sam is yelling out trying to escape the blood's flowing out of Dean's mouth until he passes out And then something breaks through. John is able to break through just enough to say, stop, stop it. And it only freed John for a moment, only gave him a moment to overcome the demon and release his sons from this demon's influence. It was the moment that Sam needed to grab up the gun before Azazel took back over. The thing that hurts me most about this scene is that this is yet another instance of Sam hearing these words 
out of John's mouth, even if it's not John saying them technically about Dean and Dean not disagreeing about how he always saw Sam as his favorite, even when they were arguing, it's more care than John had ever shown Dean. Sam saw every moment of this and apparently retains none of it. He has no concept of that this is how Dean feels about the whole relationship between the three of them. And again, I'm just like, how can you not retain this, Sam? How How is it that anyone in this fandom thinks of you as the emotionally intelligent one of the three, of, of you and Dean? Like, I'm still trying to figure that one out, totally boggled. But that's not important in this episode because in this episode, Sam is about to break free as John retains, regains control for just that moment, grabs a gun, points it at John and the demons back in control by the time he gets the gun aimed. And it's like, what, you know, if you shoot, if you kill me, you're going to kill your daddy. And Sam's like, I know. And he shoots him in the leg, not a kill shot, but Hopefully it will do something because now there's one bullet left in that gun and the only thing they can point it at and shoot is that that demon now. I think Sam's half hoping a leg shot will kill the demon, but I think he realizes that it really won't. Sam walks right past John lying on the floor and to Dean to check on him. He's lost a lot of blood and Dean's like, where's dad? And he's like, he's okay. He's right here. And Dean's like, go check on him. Go check on him. Even though Dean's like half dead, he's like, go check on John, go check on him. Not just because John's injured, but because John might still be possessed. And that's a serious real concern here. As Sam cautiously approaches John, John stirs and he's clearly in pain and struggling because he's holding back the demon. He's like, begging Sam to shoot him that this could be over right now. The thing that they've both apparently been the only thing they cared about for the last 23 years, they can end it right here. If Sam just shoots John in the heart and kill, it would kill the demon. But would Sam be able to live with himself knowing he did that? He's already shot John in the leg and you know, They've only got one bullet left. Wouldn't it just be awful if the demon had been like convinced Sam to shoot it and then escaped John before the bullet took effect? There's no guarantee that that bullet at this point is going to kill the demon. And I could see that if Sam had fired the gun here, it would have ended up being a very traumatic, awful thing. And the demon was alive and they had no weapon and John was dead at Sam, with by Sam's hand. So, yeah, that would have been worse. Dean is over across the room going, no, don't you shoot him, Sam. Don't do it. Don't do it. Sam doesn't. The demon does escape John. John just flops back to the ground like he's so frustrated and disappointed that it's not over yet. And they didn't win. And he almost killed both of his sons in the process. The next scene is in the car as they're driving 
Sam's driving because he's the only one of the three of them like fit to drive at this point. Dean's lost a lot of blood. He's unconscious in the back seat. John's in the front seat with a bullet in his leg and they're driving to the hospital or wherever. They're driving away from this cabin where they the demon had trapped them. And Bad Moon Rising is playing on the radio. And yeah, it's just the beginning of the bad bad everything. John's like, I'm so, I'm disappointed in you. You know, I thought we saw eye to eye on killing this thing. Why didn't you kill it? And Sam's like, yeah, well, thought that was the only thing that mattered. And Sam's like, well, yeah, it's not the only thing that matters. You meaning I care about the two of you more than killing the demon. So finally, Sam has reached that point where revenge isn't the primary motive here. It's staying alive. And he's like, we still got one bullet. We can track it. You know, we can still f- start over and find that. And then he gets cut off because they get rammed in the side by a semi. The bad moon is risen. And we see that it's a demon behind the wheel of the semi. And now John, Sam, and Dean, none of them are in any shape to drive anywhere. And neither is the car. And the carcass of that car will sit on a back lot for the next 15 seasons and show up in several other episodes as as a just mauled vehicle in the background of a shot and poor baby r.i.p that car because <laughs> they have a bunch of different cars but the one that they sacrificed to get smashed with a truck served its duty let's honor that with a moment of silence thank you car anyway that's the end of season one it ends on a massive cliffhanger so if this if they hadn't gotten picked up for season two that would have been the end of the series which i always think is amusing to think at the end of seasons like imagine if they just never picked up the series again and it just ended there like the only place in canon it really even makes even remote sense is at the end of season five because kripke had intended to in the series there at that point. I mean, there was no five-year plan. I'm not even going to talk about, I've already ranted about the five-year plan on this podcast. It wasn't a thing, but going into season five, he was planning to end the series there. Then the network was like, well, we'd like you to make more. And so he handed the reins to Sarah. So like, but season five ended on a place where it sort of wrapped up the main storylines and, and it was, disappointing as hell and it's like if if it really had ended there nobody would still talk about this show it would have been you know one of those oh it was an interesting little show but yeah nobody watches it nobody talks about it it probably would never have had the fandom it does now and it would have been a novelty thing and people would have forgotten about it by now 10 years after the fact it would have been done so I always like to try and imagine out from the series, the season finales, like if the show had ended here, what would that have looked like? And it's just like, well, of course, it would have been some obscure show that nobody even remembered. I wouldn't have even remembered it. And I had been planning on watching this when season one started, but I was also in the process of moving into this house that I live in now. And so like my entire life was occupied with weird moving shit and just the hassle of that for that year. And I ended up missing like the first, 
on a few episodes of the season before I remembered, oh yeah, I wanted to watch that show. And by the time I got around to it, it's just like, I've missed too much. I'll just catch up over summer reruns, but they never had summer reruns back then. Like this was like the era between when they used to rerun a whole series during the summer enough for you to catch up. And when they started putting on replacement summer shows to fill the space that these shows take place during the regular season. So there really wasn't a chance to catch up until it came to Netflix when I started watching it. But yeah, I would have completely forgotten the show existed at all, ever. And so I'm very glad the show did not end here. I mean, obviously it's a terrible place to end a show on such cliffhanger, but I mean, just as far as a cultural impact of the show to this point, it really didn't exist yet. But it will. Oh, it will. And I don't think it will until after maybe season eight, when it started to boom on Netflix, when a lot of people started to watch the show, who never thought they would ever watch this show before it started to grow by leaps and bounds and word of mouth and a a swell of new audience members watching. Yeah, that happened around season eight. So, yeah, I should probably not even bother with this little segment of this series. (laughs) Because really, honestly, until that point, there was no lasting cultural significance of this show. It didn't hit in a way that people would be still talking about it to this day, let alone have created the fandom into what it is and had this resonance with viewers. I mean, yeah, it resonates with viewers, even these early seasons do, but in the way that it became a cultural phenomenon that vastly exceeded the confines of this one little fandom. I mean, everybody on the internet knows who we are, basically. So the show got pretty big. I think that's... I talked about what the major bits of this that I really wanted to during the episode. There's a couple of posts in my tag for the episode, and I'll link those in the description as usual, along with Bobby's casting sides and everything else that I usually list. So that brings us to the end of the season, which we'll pick up next week with season two, episode one, In My Time of Dying. So... We're left to wonder which one of them is dying. Well, we um, we already know. <laughs> In the meantime, you can always reach me if you have questions, comments, or thoughts, or ideas, or anything to say. You can reach me at SPNGeorge on Tumblr or MittensMorgul on Tumblr. Or you can email me at MittensMorgul at gmail.com. Or you can reach me on our Discord server, which I'll give you an invite for if you reach if you reach out to me on Tumblr or through email. And until next week, I hope everybody has a nicer week than the Winchesters will, sitting unconscious in the Impala smashed to bits and Bad Moon Rising playing. So, oh, yeah, because right now it's dark. Bad Moon Rising's playing and it was night and now it's day. So next episode it'll be day. Sam's still wearing that stupid polo shirt. So I think he's going to get to wear it right on into the beginning of season two. Huh. Oh well. Toodles.
man, I think I'm just going to cut that stuff about my cat being weird from earlier in the episode and stick it here. Because after that, we need we need a bit of something a little bit lighter. So, yeah, I'm going to cut all the outtakes of my cat fucking around and making noise and like bolting around the room and attacking a paper bag. Um, that will be <laughs> that will be this bumper. Oh, my God, my cat is attacking something on the floor. I must move this thing because it's noisy. Ugh, he lost interest. Okay. Anyway, what was I even saying? Kripke. Right. Showrunner. My God, my cat is like on crack or something tonight. I don't know what's going on with him. Apologies for my cat's multiple interruptions. Back to Bobby Singer. Telling Dean that they... Jesus Christ, cat. 